0: been said that the definition for insanity is doing the same thing and expecting different results. I've been insane many times in my life, I have to admit, and I, so I guess I could claim insanity, right? I don't know if there's any tax deductions with that or whatever, but uh, I have done many things that I should have learned from other people. Uh, their mistakes, or I try something, drive it into the ground, and finally after after wearing out a lot of tools in my life, I figure out this isn't going to work. But sometimes we just get into this mentality that what I'm doing either isn't going to hurt me, and so I'm going to keep doing Never, never never mind the fact that previous generations have proven that what I'm about to do fails and creates all kinds of turmoil on the job, in the home, in the life, or whatever. Uh, so it really kind of comes down to insanity. And Sometimes I, I think that, That, as I said a few weeks ago, Satan does not need new tricks. He just needs new people. He's been doing the same tricks since the beginning of time, and he's getting the same results. Sometimes I think that Satan is not creative. And then other times I think he doesn't need to be creative. He just needs to take out his old tools from his old toolbox Dust them off, polish them up, modernize them, dress them up, make them contemporary, and we'll suck down that hook like everybody, every other fish has come along. Sometimes we wonder how we can catch a fish, throw it back, and be in it getting caught later on. Sometimes we are about as bright as a fish. And we use that analogy because, as I said last week, a period brought up the idea that Satan was a professional fisherman. And he's out to hook us. He's out to catch us. He's out to devour us. He's out to take us as his own. He is the preeminent professional fisherman, the gym dance, if you will, of, uh, of, of our spiritual life. But also, I mentioned last week that the world represents something. The devil represents a pro- uh, that professional fisherman, but the world represents that, that, that bait out there that we get sucked into, the systems of this world that so much make up what we end up biting down on. And, and the world, excuse me, the world represents. I think that's in reverse. Uh, the world, yeah, the, our flesh represents the hook. The hook is that 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 element inside of us that catches it, that 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 we end up biting down on, that we end up devouring it, and it ends up uh, costing us greatly. I think we need to be very much forewarned about the world around us as that tool that Satan uses. God makes it quite clear throughout scriptures that if you look at. The Apostle John, in his writings, in in John chapter 15, verse 19, it says, The world hates you. We need to understand that there is not a love affair. There's actually a a tremendous amount of hate between the systems of our world and followers of Jesus. We run countercultural. We will swim upstream. Any other metaphor you want to put? We are cut from a different cloth, and the world doesn't like that. It will actually despise us. In, uh, in, uh, in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul even said, Do not be conformed to the world. So again, we are encouraged to be careful that the systems that may suck us in, that we might bite down on, could be the very thing, the bait out there, that is not healthy for us. James, the half brother of Jesus, said it like this The world's systems, uh, he said it like this in James chapter 4, verse 4. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Now think about that. You want to make an enemy with God? Become a friend of the world. Bite down on this world. Live in the systems of this world in such a way that you become like this world, as Paul said, conform to this world. Then you are literally creating an enemy relationship, an adversarial relationship, if I can use the same word, the same root word, that adversarial relationship between us and God. James chapter 4 goes on to say, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In the true Lord's Prayer, in John chapter 17, verse 15, this is what Jesus prayed for us. He says, I do not ask that you would take them out of the world, but you would keep them from the evil one. Now, I want you to see the the parallel that's going on there. He's, he's, He's drawing a connection between the evil one and the world systems in which we live. And again, I don't think that the way that we're going to get away from the systems of this world is to create some kind of monastic community that we're all going to live in. We're all going to be safe and free from the world. The big, bad, evil world is out there, and it's going to get us, and so we need to just have our holy huddles, and that will preserve and keep us. Remember, I spoke last week of the flesh, that maybe the greatest enemy The greatest adversary of our life maybe actually ourselves. So let us beware that it's not just the enemy without, it's the enemy within. But the enemy without is very real. But it's not God's desire that we pull away from the world. This is the the tension. This is the, the dichotomy between the two. That they're going to live in opposition, but somehow God says He wants us to live inside of this world, but not necessarily be of the world and that is something i'll promise you from the day you become a follower of christ and you begin to swim upstream will be a constant day to day battle i believe that's why jesus said you've got to die daily and i would say die minute by minute would be more accurate or millisecond by millisecond because we will constantly be swimming against the stream of this world and it is quite difficult at times in our life take your bibles be finding the book of first john Way back in the New Testament. Not the John with red letters all through it. Go away past that and go to first John chapter two, where we'll be today. And I think the great thing about the, the scriptures, especially as Paul calls himself the chiefest of sinners, I kind of feel a little bit better about myself when I just read about Paul's life. Um, But I think God has has resolved the fact and resigned the fact that we are not going to be perfect. I mean, He obviously sent His Son, Jesus, to take care of our imperfections. But it doesn't mean that we can't be victorious. All right? Understand and grasp the difference. We We will not be perfect this side of heaven, but we can be victorious this side of heaven. And learning to live in that victory is going to be the key Issue in our life. If we strive for perfection, you will never achieve it. But if you can, you can strive for perfection. Excuse me, victorious living, and you can achieve that. In John chapter, uh, first John chapter uh, two, we're going to begin reading in verse fourteen. In the middle part of verse fourteen, it says this: "I write to you, young men, because you are strong." I like that. I hope that I am strong. I hope that I am as Joshua was encouraged three different times in one chapter, be strong and courageous, Joshua, be strong and courageous. One of the reasons we named our child Joshua is because of the strength and the courage that Joshua had in the midst of adversarial position, being in the minority that he was in, being uh, uh, against even the Israelite people voting against him in his own, in his own uh, views. But he was strong, and he speaks here of these young Christians, these young believers Because you are strong. And then he says, and the Word of God abides in you. Now don't miss that one. The Word of God abides in you. I really believe that the source of their strength was the source of God's Word. And even early on, the source of victory in their life has to be tied back to a, a very clear presence of God's Word inside of them. Abiding, living, resonating Uh, taking up ownership in their life. I've quoted from Mark Bubeck every week that we've come together because I believe it is the best book on the adversary out there. He said this, he says, No one will become strong in warfare who neglects using the Word of God in an active program of memorization and meditation. So my question to you, and you're victorious, and you're, you're seeking after a victorious life, how much does God's Word abide in you? But he goes on and he says, because of you, you are strong, because the Word of God abides in you. And he says, and you have overcome the evil one. You have overcome the evil one. I like the concept of me becoming an overcomer and not being overcome. I would love to know what it is that makes up this kind of victorious living that I can literally walk in life and not be sucked into the world system. Living in the world system, I am. God didn't take us from that. He didn't even pray that we would leave the world systems, but that we wouldn't become shaped and molded by the systems of our world and by the the bait and the hook that is out there working in in some kind of synergism of, of life and the pulling us in, sucking us in that we bite down on. How can I... Be an overcomer. Overcome. You have have overcome the evil one. What about this? I can overcome the evil one. Say that with me. I can overcome the evil one. Say it again. I can overcome the evil one. Flip Wilson said a number of years ago, the devil made me do it. It was part of his act. The point is, is that you can be an overcomer. And how does that happen? This is not just one of those feel-good messages. This is one of those that you get to that passage of Scripture, and you go, okay, God, I'm all for it. Now, how do I get there? How do I live strong? How do I live with your Word abiding in me? How do I overcome all this kind of stuff that is out there in this world? And we get, keep reading with me in, in verse 15. He says, do not love the world or the things of the world. I think one of the things we've got to understand is where is our passion where is our devotion? Where where are we drawn? Do not love the world, not even the things that are in the world. Now this is one of those, again, that you will constantly in your life, you're going to have to push back consciously on, because it is so easy to get sucked in to the shiny car, and the fast car, and the nice home, and the nice subdivision, and the expensive vacations, and the beautiful woman, and the cool relationship and the the, the climbing the ladder of life, whatever that ladder is. And all the things that make up the world in which we live, he says, don't love it. Don't even love the things in the world. In the world, again, I don't want to create this idea that everything the Bible says about the world is, is wrong because there's seven different usages for the word world in Scripture, obviously john 3:16 god loved the world okay that's the people of the world but this usage that we speak of is more about the systems the pop culture the hollywood the politician the educator the author the friend madison avenue and etc 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 these systems that become a part of us we must be consciously aware of here's a life principle for you life principle is that Principle that is universal, that is timeless. Satan's ways and offers, Satan's ways and offers, will make perfect sense and are widely accepted, but their delivery is always a ripoff. Beware. You will find, we will find ourselves in systems in this world that everybody is going. It makes sense. It falls in line. It computes. But, but, it's short on delivery. So what systems of the world do we need to be aware of? What bait and hook out there? And again, these are almost simultaneously spoken of, the bait and the hook that we battle with inside of us. But there are three dangers out there, three dangerous detours as we journey through life, if you will, that can pull us in and make us a part of the world's systems. One is pleasures. There are a lot of pleasures out there. There are a lot of things, and we need to be aware of them, because pleasures is when we, by by our natural passions, we are moved. When my natural passions that are very natural and very innate, when they are driving me forward and I'm living by that natural instinct, then Satan, all he has to do is hang a little system in in front of us, hang a little bait in front of us, hang a hook in front of us with the bait of a natural desire, and all of a sudden we bite. We bite. And we become a part of We are a sensory-infused individuals. We're obsessed by that in our society. It, 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 if it tastes good, we eat it, no matter how processed or trans fats are in it. If it's sensual, we'll indulge in it. If it numbs the pain, we'll consume it. If it's funny, we'll watch it and laugh with it. If it says don't touch, we'll touch, in essence. Now, I don't know about you, but... But when you put a don't don't touch sign in front of a child, that's like saying touch. All right? It's just like saying, you know, please pick me up and hold me and squeeze me and rattle me and drop me. That's what you're saying when you put that. And, and you know, you're the same way. I mean, maybe I am. I, you know, if I see something that don't touch, I say, why shouldn't I touch that? I start asking myself, maybe there's a sensation about that. Maybe Maybe I could touch that and it would be alright for me, but not for other people. And, and so, you know. in fact, I'll tell you, at, at Lynn's Garden, one of my favorite Oriental food restaurants in town, there's this great big fat Buddha who sits over in the corner. He's carved out, and it has a big don't touch sign on it. I just so much want to touch his big fat belly so badly, but there's always people around. But I'm just like, wanting, why can't I touch Buddha's belly? You know, uh, kind, of, kind, of, kind of sensation. It's like when also when you're with a friend, and You kind of got your back to somebody and they say, Now don't look, but the person behind you, what do you do? And you're like you start twitching and and seizuring and because you can't you can't not look, and you say, Can I look now? Can I look now? There's something about our senses drive us forward. And if we don't as we grow up, learn to control those senses. They will control us. And Satan knows it. So he'll dangle something in front of us. Because we have not learned to control the pleasures of the flesh, we can easily get sucked in. Just like a child. Verse 16 says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh the desires of the flesh, and he even goes on to say, is not from the Father, but from the world. So the reality is that we live in a world, the system that actually thrives on bringing out a sensual sensation and touch and feel and taste and smell and hearing that actually drives us forward if we're not careful and if we do not control it. And I thought this week in just preparing this What what senses out there, what what temptations, what systems are in place in our world that really control us rather than us controlling it? My friends, I could not, if I had an entire message or two or three, cover all of the senses and all of the systems that tentilate and draw in and call in our senses. The fleshly desire, the, the desires of our flesh. And so I just thought of two of them just for the sake of time to just throw two in. These things say don't touch, but somehow in our world systems we are touching. And I may hit you with one, miss you with the other. I may miss you with both and you create your own. What is it that the, the desires of your flesh that draw you out? The first one, the first big passion of our world is an erotic lifestyle. We are a sexually charged culture. We're one of Satan's most common tools from the clergy, those in the ministry, to those in the business world, to those in the home place, to those sitting quietly at their own computer, to those just simply watching as a family television. is There is this erotic culture that is an undertone that we as Americans have become a part of us. And because Satan has all the time in the world literally on his hands, he he literally can slowly digress a culture into believing that it's okay. He has all the time in the world. But in our culture today, it's interesting if you look at it statistically, teens today will see 30,000 more sexual images than their grandparents. 30,000 more. In 1950, as the end of the 1950s came came around, 30% of the young people approved of sex before marriage. Compared today, 75%. What's wrong with that? We're seeing a digression in our culture toward a far more erotic lifestyle. I have been called old-fashioned and been told to get my head out of the sand because I won't marry somebody who's living with somebody else and because I challenge somebody to stop living together before you become a member of a church. I'm old-fashioned. I've got my head in the sand. We're a sexually charged culture with a hook that's shaped exactly sometimes to the male anatomy, sometimes to the female anatomy. Ethan Hawke said it like this, he said, Martin Luther King suffered from infidelity, so did John F. Kennedy. You're more likely to find great leadership coming from a man who likes to have sex with a lot of women. I read that and I thought, you know what, pop icons, politicians, religious leaders, they can't control their passions the systems of our world are creating, informing, and conforming us. Beware of an erotic lifestyle. Number two. Another one of many. Is the food that we eat. The food we eat. We are a consuming kind of culture. We, we use food for therapy to to take away the the pains of life or the burden of a a stressful day. Our eating habits and lack of exercise create us into a blob, so to speak, to where we are no longer fit to serve, fit to go, fit to do. And you know what? It is exactly describing the Christian culture to a T. A study done by Purdue University. This is not a Sunday school board out of Nashville or anything like that. But in 2006, updated a study by sociologist Kenneth Ferrero, And he said that church members tend to be more overweight than the general population. And that Baptists, in all their fried potluck dinners, 27% of Baptists, we rank highest. What a sad testimony. The most expensive insurance I could find out there was ministerial insurance. I called on that one day. I said, you realize that I'm not buying insurance from you, even though you are designed and marketing towards pastors. And they said, yes, because you're stressed and overweight. Something to think about. And if it's happening... Here it's happening. We've got to be so conscious of our senses, the desires of our flesh, everything from an erotic lifestyle or sitting down at a buffet. Philippians chapter 3 verse 19 says, Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. Notice this last phrase, and their minds are set on earthly things. What a connection. Their God is their belly, their mind is set on earthly things. Their God is their belly, their mind is set on... We can't live this sensual lifestyle if it feels good do it. I want you to notice something about these two. Just these two that I've mentioned. There is nothing wrong with sexuality. And there's nothing wrong with eating. But it's whenever the senses of our world control our life rather than... God's Spirit and God's ways, then we have taken what would have been good and great and honorable and right, and it's corrupted us. Be very conscious of your natural desires, of your gut instincts, of what everybody's doing, because it feels good, because you can justify it. Because that is one of the ways Satan gets us. Number two, the second dangerous detour that's out there is possessions. When the desires of my eyes steer me, the desires of the eyes, he said again in verse, verse 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes. So much of what we desire out there are things, possessions. Now I want to stop right here. Before you think, okay, God's a cosmic killjoy out there. He's some kind of sadistic God who doesn't want us to enjoy life and things. He's not about sadistic lifestyle. In fact, James chapter 1, verse 17 says, Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. First Samuel chapter 2, verse 7 says, The Lord makes poor and He makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. I had somebody in my first church, an elderly lady, who believed that anybody who had money was corrupt, evil, and evil. It took the hardest time to try to convince her. I don't know that I ever convinced her that money is not evil. Money is all moral. It is not immoral or moral. It is all moral that what happens in our, inside of us is with the possessions that we have and the things that we can is that it begins to shape us. It begins to control us. And when it becomes the driving force, then it, no, not it, we have bitten down and become it. Do you own it or does it own you? When stuff owns us, then we are in trouble. Then we are... Heading down a very dangerous road. What, is your, what are your eyes looking at today? What are your impulses just driving you to right now that your, your eyes want and you can't stand until you get, and you're willing to leverage the farm until you get it? Think about it. So many people, I was speaking with a financial planner just, just two weeks ago. Deals with a lot of people planning out their life. And he said, Mike, he said you would not believe the number of people who come in so leveraged, so much in debt, and they talk about the things that they want to do with their life of meaning and purpose. But when we get out and we lay everything out on a spreadsheet, all of their stuff, all of their things, all of their debt has so handicapped them that they can't do the higher good. The things that are greater and nobler that God would want. So literally Satan has slipped in the back door, has stimulated the eyes. They have thought. They have sucked down the hook. And now they can no longer give graciously. Now they can no longer can go on a mission trip. Now they can no longer do and help because it's all about maintaining their own life. It's the last time you ever heard a message on envy? on greed, on contentment, on covetedness. I have to admit, as I thought through that this week, I've never preached a message on covetedness. I mean, it's one of the Ten Commandments. I preached on adultery. I preached on not to murder. I preached on honoring your father and your mother. But have I ever preached on don't covet? Just learn To be content. See, we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. What is wrong with this system? What's wrong with it? We get sucked in and all of a sudden goods become God's. When goods become God's, life becomes hellish. When goods become God, life becomes hellish and we begin to lose focus. There are three results, real quickly, that happens when goods become God's, is that we have forgotten who God is and who He is not. We've forgotten. All of a sudden we live to work and work to live, and it's all about the paycheck, it's all about the next stimulus thing that we can get, and we're stimulating ourselves, and we're getting, and we're getting, and we're getting, and we're attaining, and good night. How much more? What if we were to live... Like Jesus, even when He was offered a meal, He was offered a time to eat. He was offered food, a very natural thing. He said, no, my food, it says in John four thirty four, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. What if it was, I was about not about the gods of this world and the things of this world, but my mission was about God's mission. And I literally lived... A missional life. I lived on mission like Jesus did. Number two, the second thing that happens when goods become gods is that we've lost our ability to give, to live a 3G giving life. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. Now I want it to become just one of those things that we constantly run our thoughts and priorities through. Is my giving generous? Is my giving gregarious? That means Unhindered. Is my giving glorifying? Can you run? Can you run that as the filter in which? Because I have so many people talk to me about how much should I give: ten percent, fifteen percent, twenty percent. What? What is it, Mike? I said, you know, I start at ten percent and build from there. But if it comes down to it, it's not what percentage. It's, it's. Am I giving generously, gregariously, and is God being glorified through it? Think about that in your own life. But because when things, possessions are steering us. It's not God. It's not giving. It's not helping. We are so blessed as a nation. Here in two weeks, we're going to have a dear, probably one of my dearest friends, dearest friends in the world who will be here with us for a day. His name is Friday Simbamba. He lives in the bush of Africa. And I got a call just on Thursday that he's coming. And literally, he's, he had to have his hand held through all the airport systems. He's speaking at a church these next two weeks in Alabama. But I've worked it out that He's going to come here and be with us for a day. And my greatest fear is what all stuff He's going to see that we have. And then He's going to say, Mike, when are you going to come see us again? And I'm going to say, I can't. I can't afford to. And He's going to look at my house and He's going to look at my three cars and He's going to look at my clothes and the closet and the shoes and he's going to see all that and he's going to say, "Boy, you you can't or you won't. You can't or you won't. That offering basket's passed. You can't or you won't." We lost our ability to give. Number three, when goods become our gods, we live disillusioned. Because all of a sudden we wake up one morning, and I don't know when that morning will be. It will be 25, 35, 45, 55, 65. I don't know what age you'll be, but you'll wake up one morning and you'll say, I've got it all now. I've got more than I thought I needed. I got more than I wanted in the beginning when I wanted what I wanted. But I'm still not satisfied. This is what one person said. Greed is a fat demon with a small mouth and whatever you feed it, it is never enough. Matthew 16, 26 says it like this. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world? If he's the next Bill Gates, Steve Jobs. If he's like gore and invents the internet that was funny Um, if he comes up with a cure for cancer if he's all these things what does he get and he forfeits his own soul that's when disillusionment sets in beware the third the third thing, we must be careful, the system of our world, the detour that will take us off track, desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of possessions. Pride of possessions. Well, I don't necessarily like the ESV's translation of possessions because no other translation has it like that. It's really just the pride of life. But I think what they're doing in that translation is trying to say we're the sum total of our possessions. And so all of a sudden, you look at your life and look what I've got. Look what I've done. Look at my accomplishments. Look at me. And sometimes we don't need God because we're so successful in and of ourselves. Augustine said it like this, Pride is the mother of all sins and is pregnant with all other sins. That basically sums it all up. That if we can get pride under control that I am not God (laughs) and I can rest the universe in the hands of someone else, then I'm okay, I, I might be on on right track now. But the thing is is again, we write a story about ourselves every day that we get up. And we go and we powder our noses and we shave our faces and we make ourselves beautiful for the world in which we live that we go into and we read books that tell us how to dress for success and how to make friends and influence people. And we we, we read about all this stuff and about how to be successful, how to have a power tie and how to do this. It's all about making this image of ourself powerful and influential. And we become something great and mighty and the world revolves around us and one day they will bow down and call us blessed. It's the world in which we live. It's the system that the world tries to conform us to. It's a world about me and if I don't look out for me, nobody else is going to look out for me. This is so, so dangerous because we get sucked into believing that. And then we fight for it. And if somebody doesn't fight for us because nobody's fighting for us, then we will take them out at the knees or whatever. I think about Paul's story in his own life. you read the book of Philippians on your own, you'll see it. Paul lists his resume, all his accomplishments, all his successes, all his societies that he was a part of, all that he had accomplished. And you know what he calls it at the end? He says, I count it all done. You know, I have a better word for that, but because there's younger children in here, I won't say it. But horse hockey thats what he's saying. He says, it's nothing but a cow patty. That's all it is. I realize after all that I've got and all that I've done and all I've succeeded in, it's really nothing. It's not about me being the star of the show. It's about me being the supporting actor. And real quickly, I want to close to just show you again to where I started in the very first part of this message, is that this is full cycle. And you won't have time to get this. But I'm going to give it to your body life group leaders. They'll have it. You can talk about it in your group. But you will see how from beginning to end, from from the time of Adam and Eve to to the life of Jesus to you and me, this has been the same tricks of the trade that Satan's been using. Real quickly, you'll notice that pleasures are the desires of the flesh. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, there was a sensual appeal for what she couldn't have. She saw a tree. She had all the other trees, but she wanted the tree that she couldn't get. There was that desire of the flesh. Jesus was tempted after 40 days of fasting to turn a rock into bread. Obviously, he's a very hungry individual at this point. Again, to stimulate the senses. Questions for you and I is, what are we craving? What are you not able to say no to? What are you impulsively buying or consuming? Possessions is another thing that we deal with, and we talked about that. That longing for more. In Genesis 3, 6, the tree was desired to make one wise. And as if they were perfect, they were perfect, they were sinless, they were literally walking with God. What more could you want or need? Satan sold him a bill of goods that if you'll take of that tree, you'll be wise. It wasn't enough. God, When God alone isn't enough, nothing is enough. Jesus was tempted that he could own it all. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world, Satan did. My question for you and me is, where are you lacking contentment? What does it take to buy you? What's your price tag? Everybody has a price tag. What's your price tag? Then there's the pride. That equivalency of of to be equal with God is what the temptation was for Adam and Eve. That you will be like God. And then, of course, when Jesus was was standing on the corner at the precipice of, of the temple and He's about to step off. And all the angels would come down and swoop him up and pick him up. It would be a, a, a show of angelic power and fame. He would be praised for sure among all the people. Questions for you and me is, what is your greatest accomplishment? And the emphasis is on your greatest accomplishment. Secondly is, how are you honoring God in your successes? The pride will rob us of that. Possessions will rob us of that. Pleasures will rob us of that. This is the world that we get sucked into. You say, Mike, it's too hard out there. I can't live any other way. It's the real world. you got to face that. Mike, get your head out of the sands talk again. I want to read one last verse to you. First Corinthians chapter 10. And I want you to just let this verse just resonate in your mind. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and He will not let you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. As the folks that are going to be a part of our drama will come on up, Here's the the challenge today. You have a way of escape. You have a way of escape. Are you going to live in the escape? Or are you going to live in the excuse? Because if you were to live in the excuse, you'll say, oh, but Mike, pride. You know, if I don't promote myself, who will? Oh, Mike, you you don't realize, Mike, the temptations of my flesh are so great, I can't control them. Are you going to live in the escape? Are you're going to live in the excuse. Let's pray together. Lord, we bow before you. And some in this room today are absolutely consumed by the systems of this world. And their adversary is not a man in a pitchfork or big, dark, evil demons, one-eyed monsters in the night. But Satan has dressed up Madison Avenue. Movers and shakers. Shiny things. And the pride of ourselves. And he is using that, Lord, to hold us captive. Lord, would you set us free? Set us free from the systems of this world. Set us free from from the temptations that can hold us back. Lord, show us the escape hatch and help us to give up the excuses. In Jesus' name.